The opportunity this hour is to come together this Sunday afternoon continues to be a great one. As we often mention, by character of the prayer, by character of the singing, by character of the fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ, all of that is fantastic, all of that's encouraging, all of that's a great blessing indeed. And yet we also have the privilege of opening the Word of God and reflecting for at least a few moments on some of the things found therein. You may have noted in the bulletin that we come to October's installment of our questions and answers, and so we'll take care of that this evening. And so as we look at that, as always, I'll try to be very dutiful with respect to the wording of the questions, reading them exactly as they were presented, and then we'll give our attention to the Word of God with an effort to reflect somewhat upon those questions and the answers that go with them. It is the case, as we often do, to give some interest to, again, the reason we do this. It is our conviction that the Bible has the answers to the matters of our life. It is our conviction that just as was read a moment ago, what saith the Scripture, Romans 4 verse 3, Paul didn't ask what saith the secular writers. He didn't ask what saith the books of history. He didn't ask what saith the supposed scholars of the day. His interest was what saith the Scripture. It is our goal to do the same, and I might use this opportunity to say, avail yourself of that little box out there in the foyer. If you have questions, pass those along, and we'll see what we can do with them, certainly at the appropriate time each one of the months before us. Tonight we have three questions, and so we'll take a look at one of, one of these one at a time. The first question is worded precisely as this. Did God create Satan? Interestingly worded question, and certainly there could be much behind that, and it may well be that I have not interpreted precisely that which you had in mind. But I did think it wise to at least give some careful deliberation to at least a few thoughts going behind it, and I've tried to develop those on that slide. The word Satan appears to be the proper name of that diabolical one that's the archenemy of both God and man. In fact, on a number of occasions, that's the very name provided to him, given to him, and used to reference him. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, he stood up and led David to number Israel. Now that was not in David's best interest, and it was not in the best interest of his welfare before God. And yet, that's what Satan moved him to do. You and I can well be reminded, he's never going to move us to do something that's in our best interest. It's always something that will fall short of what it could be and in almost all cases will ultimately cause us to stand before God in a way that will be lacking. Our adversary. You may notice in Job 1 verse 6, Here was the righteous man Job, and yet this is the creature, Satan, who in fact paraded himself before God and accused Job on that occasion. He accused Job in essence of serving God only for material gain. God knew that wasn't the truth about Job. It is for those reasons that next thought is this one. Jesus forevermore referred to him this way in Matthew 4 verse 10. Get thee hence, Satan. Jesus called him by name. Have you ever thought when you're facing a temptation that you in fact could almost appreciate the very presence of this one we call Satan? He's there. He's actively active and working causing you to deliberate about doing something you ought not do or failing to do something you should do. Jesus, in the great wisdom of that moment, directly told him, Get thee hence, Satan. 
beyond all of that, this adversary is one who not only actively opposed David and Jesus, but also does so to you and me. He is that great adversary spoken of in 1 Peter 5 eight, who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. By this point, as you add to that, that famous refrain of John 8.44, Jesus again speaking said, He, that Satan, is a liar and he's always been that way. He will never tell you the truth. He will never lead you in the pathways of righteousness. All of that's just a very innocent background to note this. The fate of, of Satan is well known. He knows it. The demons know it. And those who are wise also know it. Jesus stated in Matthew 25, 41, There is a place prepared for the devil and his angels, and it's not heaven. It's this place you and I call Gehenna Hell. It's this place where the worm never dies, the fire's never quenched. It's this place that is often referenced in the Bible that not only is the dragon cast there in the book of Revelation, but so too are the beasts, and so too are all of those who side with them. Revelation chapters 19 and 20. It is with all that said, the question comes back to us, did God create Satan? The first thing we can well note is, God didn't create evil. He didn't, in essence, set the character and drive by His essence and being the existence of evil. I've asked you to notice on that slide. That thus directly means, when you and I notice in Genesis 1 verse 31, everything that God had made was said to be very good. Notice that leaves out nothing. Everything that He had made was said to be very good. That means God did not create Satan in the way that He now is. He couldn't have. It would be beyond his capacity, in essence, to choose to do such a thing. Is it not said in Habakkuk 1.13, He is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. He thus did not bring into being the very one who is the epitome of, of, of iniquity. The Bible appears to fill in the remaining details. And if God didn't create him that way, then what transpired that led him to become that way? The references that we have appear to bring us to the conclusions you'll notice on that slide. The first thing we might note, the angels were created. And those angels were created beings in the heavenly realm, of course. And Psalm 148 testifies to the reality of God's creation of them. In fact, in the first five verses of that chapter, a great deal of detail is presented about the nature of God's creation. He is bringing into existence of angels. But now, you may notice beyond that, we have a rather complete statement made in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. There we read that speaking of Jesus Christ, He created everything, both visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, all of it was created by Him and for Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now that statement encompasses every imaginable thing in terms of the way it existed at the creation. The Lord Jesus made it all. That means He didn't create again Satan in the form He now is. The next thing on that slide then is this. Might we be impressed 
with this thought that once those angels were created, as we noted, they exist in heavenly realms, but they were subject to the laws of God that reigned supreme in that place. And they had the opportunity to respond to them, at least in a parallel fashion to the way we can respond to the Lord's commandments too. God gives you and me commandments and we can choose to obey or we can choose not to. The former is called faithful obedience. The latter is called sin. Can an angel be guilty of sin? Can an angel be guilty of failing to obey that which was that angel's responsibility and expectation? Absolutely. 2 Peter 2.4 expressly says the angels sinned. There was some subgroup of the angels that chose to do that which was not their bidding, to do that which was not their prerogative, and to involve themselves in that which was not God's will for them. They sinned. Jude verse 6 appears to tell us what the nature of that sin was. In particular, it is there said that they left their first estate. Now, given the context, it seems clear that that's a reference to the fact that there is a particular hierarchy of angels. There have jobs for them, there are duties for them, responsibilities for them, and some of them were not satisfied with the place in which they were to dwell. And so they had a longing, a yearning for more, and therefore they left the first estate. They clamored after it was not God's will for what they had. In so doing, Jude says they sinned. Jude says they became guilty of this and God cast them out, meaning that He forever barred them from the nature of what one would hope that an angel would enjoy. As you keep that in mind, isn't it an amazing thing to contemplate this? When you and I falter and fail, aren't you thankful? We have a plan of salvation. What about the angels? No. Hebrews 2 verses 15 and 16 says there is no plan of salvation for angels. Once they sinned, that was it. They are reserved in chains under everlasting darkness awaiting the judgment of the last day, 2 Peter 2 4. No plan of salvation. Don't you know that they thus often commented to Jesus, didn't they? Do you remember them saying, Are you here to torment us before the time? Matthew 8 29. They knew that they were destined for torment. And they knew that the Lord had the power to do it. They begged not to do it yet. So the thing you and I might note, did God create Satan the way he is now? Absolutely not. He created angels, pristine and pure and dutiful service with all the prerogatives of enjoying heaven forevermore. But there was a law to which they were subject. And some of them chose to fail. They chose to sin. They chose to do that which was not God's responsibility and bidding for them. And in that case, they now have fallen and they are destined for eternal hell. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, the angels indeed were created beings and they are powerful. The impressions we have in the Bible are of great power to be sure, but may we never forget this. They are not equal with God. They never were, and they never shall be. God is more powerful than they. He is superior to them. And in that way, you and I can notice that Jesus said that there's one greater than even the devil here. And He was speaking about Himself in Mark 3, verse 22. 
So when you and I make use of the Master's bidding and His will and His gospel in our life, we thus stand in a greater position, one more powerful than even the devil himself. He cannot defeat a loyal, devoted, faithful servant of the Lord. As you and I close the first question, at least for tonight, we at least have been reminded that God didn't create Satan in the form he now is. Satan in the form he now is is one in which he failed by his own choosing, and he will not go to heaven. What about question number two? The second question tonight reads like this. Will we be able to see God's Spirit in heaven? Isn't that an interesting question? Will we be able to see God's Spirit in heaven? This next slide is one that invites us to give some thought to several Bible verses that touch that subject. We might well begin by making this observation. Maybe verses like these prompted the person to ask that question. In Exodus chapter 33, verse number 20, in the verses preceding that one, you and I might recall that Moses made the request, Show me thy glory. He was speaking to God. Moses wished to see the glory of God. You might well recall how God replied. God replied, No man can see my face and live. Moses, if I showed you the fullness of my glory, you wouldn't survive it. Now, God on that occasion did cover Moses and quickly pass by him, and he removed his hand for only a moment and allowed Moses to see his hinder part, the text says. But the fact still remains. To see God's face apparently was not a possibility and yet survive it. As you and I continue our journey through the Word of God, we're reminded, are we not, that the brilliance and the essence of God is beyond the capacity of the human frame as we now know it. It is for that reason on that slide I might at least just briefly recollect for you that interesting scene of Matthew chapter 17. Wasn't it true there in the opening verses of that chapter that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John? And you might recall in that transfiguration that the Lord's appearance was brighter than the sun. It was more glistening than the purest white. I say all that to say that it would appear that the essence, the brilliance, the very nature of the existence of God is brighter, more brilliant, more complete than what you and I can behold in this flesh. All of that does make the question really good. As much as you and I love God, wouldn't you hope that we can see Him? Wouldn't you hope that we can look upon the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and to abide in that moment? without some kind of overt death, or at least otherwise a separation? Some have wondered, given the greatness and the brilliance of God, will it be the case in heaven that God is just going to be at a distance and all of us will be living at a far distance from Him because we can't abide His glory? I think there's a problem with that. And I do not believe the Bible will substantiate holding that idea. Look at some of the remaining verses on that slide and see if we might consider it this way. We are told on a number of occasions that in this flesh we, of course, inhabit corruption. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and following, loudly shout that idea. 
Aren't we reminded that the time must come that we must put on incorruption. We must put on immortality. Because this flesh in which we now are is not suited to existence beyond death. It's not. This body wears out. This body is subject to the deterioration of time. It's subject to the capacities that go with the failing of years. But yet once you die, there is none of that. There is no counting of time. Although we sing a song in which we talk about 10,000 years in heaven, I think we understand what the sentiment is, but the fact is there will be no calendars there. There will be no keeping of time. There will be no wristwatches. There will be no clocks on the wall. Ceaseless ages. Unending time. No wonder in that connection, in light of this verse, you might notice about the middle of that slide, we shall, we must put on immortality. We must put on incorruption. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54. Surely then in that light we are prepared to note this. The next two verses, I think, will be key as we contemplate the answer to our question. Will we be able to see God? Revelation 21.3 expressly says, God will dwell among His people. Note the pronoun among. It's not as if we're going to be a far distance from Him. We will dwell among. He will dwell among us. Not only that. Would you note the interesting other one I've asked you to appreciate? In Revelation 22, verse number 4, may I invite, in fact, read that text as we listen to it in light of the, te- the question that was asked to us tonight. Will we see God's face? Will we be in His sight? John the Revelator put it like this. I'll begin reading in verse 4 of Revelation 22. And they shall see His face. Who's the they? All the redeemed. All the saved, it says, they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Will we see His face? The text says yes. Holding your finger there, look back to 1 John chapter 3. There's another passage here which also affords us some additional thought on this matter. 1 John Chapter number 3. Verse 2 reads like this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now John's statement there has reference to that time when the Lord reappears. When He comes again, and the text says, we'll see Him as He is. Because we will have an existence at that point, also like that realm beyond this one. But there are two verses that use the word see, and it details that we shall see Him. Doesn't that excite us? The thought that we will be able to look upon Him and enjoy His glory in fullness, which was what Moses could not do back in Exodus 33, but which you and I shall be able to do. We'll see Him as He is. In Revelation 22, which is that grand statement, that beautiful description of the faithful in heaven. 
aren't you reminded of the fact that that comes after the description where there'll be no death, no sorrow, no pain, no crying there. And there's also no sin there. Because all of those who were guilty of adultery, all of those that were fornicators, all of those that love to make lies, the text says they won't be there. Well, the very place where you and I shall be is the very place we'll be able to see the face of God. That's exciting, isn't it? But we shall see Him as He is. And in that verse before us, again, it says, They shall see His face. So it's not as if we'll have to see His backside. We'll be able to see His face. And I think we've given some biblical consideration to the question that was asked. What about question number three tonight? This question reads as follows. Was the centurion mentioned in connection with Jesus' crucifixion in Mark 15, 39, the same person as the centurion Cornelius mentioned in Acts chapter 10? That too is an interesting question. In fact, some introductory comments about that one are what occupies the first part of this slide that's now before you. You and I are well aware of the fact that that centurion mentioned in Mark 15, 39 was a man who could much be said about. In fact, I've just very briefly list, listed some of those matters for you, but do you and I recall that between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are several truths mentioned to us about that centurion. Among the first things we might say is that a Roman centurion was the leader of 100 Roman soldiers. The various troops in the Roman army were divided into subnumbers, and when you get all the way down to the number 100, 100 soldiers was led by a man that was called a centurion. Centurions appeared more than once on the pages of the biblical narrative. I might at least remind us that in some instances they were remarkably complimented. Do you remember the scene of Mark, or rather Matthew chapter 8, when a centurion came to Jesus? and his servant was sick. The centurion pleaded with Jesus on behalf of that servant. Do you recall what the, what the centurion said? If I may paraphrase, he said, you don't even need to come to my house. If you'll give the word, it'll be done. And he then described his own essence and said, I am in control of men, and when I give the word, they follow. That centurion had such confidence in Jesus if you but give the word, it shall be done, even if you're not there. Jesus responded by saying, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. That's amazing. Now that centurion was a Gentile. And Jesus said, I haven't found this much faith even amongst the Israelites. But beyond that fact, you and I will recall that the centurion mentioned in connection to the Lord's crucifixion had the privilege of seeing some amazing things. Just contemplate some of them. He was able to see the Lord's reaction to those who were crucifying Him. Now you and I might quickly observe that on many occasions that centurion likely had witnessed crucifixions. He likely had seen what had befallen those who were the victims of that kind of death. And he no doubt had seen many of them respond with great anger and perhaps even blasphemy and even vehemence. Maybe he'd seen many being crucified spit upon those that were driving the nails into him. 
Maybe he'd seen them calling out profanities and using names to describe those doing this to him. But isn't it interesting? He never saw Jesus react that way. Just the opposite. He saw Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. This centurion had seen Jesus even preach one of the most amazing sermons ever preached to one of the thieves crucified with him. Both of those thieves railed on Jesus at first, and yet one of them came to his senses and said, We're here because we justly deserve it, but this man has never done any such thing. In fact, in a conversation between Jesus and that thief, that thief pleaded with the Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus replied, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Luke 23 verse 43. Do you suppose the centurion heard that conversation? It certainly wouldn't be unreasonable. You and I know the centurion would have witnessed three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. You and I know the centurion may well have noticed the Lord crying as he gave up the ghost and may well have heard him say, It is finished, John 19.30. To say all that is to say that centurion saw a lot. And he also had this to say, Truly this man was the Son of God. A centurion said that. It wasn't a faithful Israelite that said it. It wasn't one of the apostles that said it. It was a centurion that said it. One other thing that Matthew's account reminds us of is that centurion watched Jesus. It may well be that enough things had transpired, it captivated that centurion's mind, and he couldn't help but watch to see what would happen. At any rate, he made declaration this man was righteous, and he also said, truly this man was the Son of God. All of that maybe brings us to ask this. That centurion in such a positive way, may lead us to wonder, later in the New Testament, there is another centurion who is complimented in some of the highest ways in all the Bible. He's found in Acts chapter 10, and his name was Cornelius. You remember him well. Cornelius, in verse 1 of that chapter, was said to be a centurion of the Italian band. He was a leader of a hundred Roman soldiers and apparently stationed in Italy. But beyond that, notice in the next verse the description of, of, of Cornelius. He was a devout man. He prayed to God always. He gave alms on a regular basis. And furthermore, he is said to be a just man. In Acts chapter 10, verse 22, he was known to be generous. He was known to be a dutiful person with respect to his dealings with others. And he was known to be devout. That word carries a thought of piousness and godliness. All of that leads us to note this. Were these two centurions one and the same? Could it be that though we aren't given the name of the centurion back in the gospel accounts, maybe that had been Cornelius? That's a good question. Let's devote some attention to see what may be the Bible's response to that kind of a question. You may notice at the bottom of that page, I went ahead and given you what it appears to me to be the answer. Although I suppose it is possible, it surely appears highly unlikely that the centurion mentioned in the gospel accounts is the same as Cornelius 
mentioned in Acts chapter 10. You may wonder what reasons there might be for that. On this next slide, I've tried to summarize several things that might at least be a part of our response to, to that particular question. The first one might be this. The name Cornelius was an exceedingly popular Latin name during the time of the first century. So much so that even secular records that point to that time often mention many, many men by the name of Cornelius. The first thing we might note, there apparently were lots of baby boys that were named Cornelius by their parents. And as they grew up, of course, there would have been a lot of Corneliuses living in that particular time. Now that certainly is no great strong reason just by itself. I did think it worth to mention it, especially in light of what comes next. Might you and I remember the same person that wrote the book of Acts also wrote the book of Luke. Luke was the author of both the gospel according to Luke as well as the book we call Acts. We know that because of the way both books begin. In Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we have an identification of who the author was and the person to whom both books were written, namely, the person known as Theophilus. It does, however, seemingly add an, an appreciation, that thought does at least, that might go a long way toward helping us. The same person, namely Luke, wrote both of these books. I wonder how Luke referred then to both these centurions. I've asked you to notice exactly the way that he uses the wording in, re in reference to one of them. First of all, in Luke 23, verse number 47, Luke makes mention of the centurion that was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Luke makes mention of him, references him identically and directly, doesn't call him by name admittedly, but does make reference to that centurion that we noted earlier that said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now come to the Cornelius reference in Acts chapter 10. If it was the same centurion, you would suppose that Luke would have used a different reference. Remember, same author writing the same man, Theophilus. If he had already referenced this man, the same centurion, surely he would have used a different wording than this. I call your attention to the following. In Acts 10 verses 1 and 2, he refers to Cornelius as a certain centurion. Nothing unique, nothing special, not any hint that he had referred to him before. Just some centurion, a certain man. Wouldn't you think that had that been the same centurion, that Luke would have referred to him as the centurion to which Theophilus I wrote to you earlier about? The same one that was present on that earlier occasion. Many times in the gospel accounts, there is parenthetical information given like that. You and I know it well. Some idea or some person is under discussion, and then it's identified who exactly that was in light of what had been written previously. But Luke gives not the slightest hint in Acts 10 that he had written to Theophilus about this man at all before. He just says a certain centurion, a certain man. For that reason, and again, it sure seems to me highly unlikely that Cornelius was the same centurion that was present at the crucifixion of our Lord in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One last thing at the bottom of that slide then would be this. We also should at least keep in mind there were many years that separated the events. 
of Acts chapter 10 and the crucifixion of our Lord. We do know that Jesus was crucified in the spring of AD 30. So we know that centurion was stationed in Jerusalem at that time. But how many years passed before the conversion of Cornelius? I confess that's a difficult question to exactly answer. It would appear it is at least five to six years later. And if that be true, we have an expanse of time, and it surely would think that centurion would be stationed somewhere far different than Jerusalem by that length of time later. But again, that's only an observation. Surely, the earlier thought was far more along the lines of it seems a more concrete or at least a stronger line of consideration. It doesn't appear that Cornelius was that same centurion. As we close our lesson tonight, three questions. And these, in fact, one by one, have invited us to ponder the origin of Satan, that God didn't create him in the form he now is. We also gave some consideration to seeing God's Spirit, and we were greatly enlivened by the thought that, yes, we will. The Word of God assures it. And finally, that centurion that witnessed the Lord's crucifixion appears not to have been the same one as Cornelius. Because after all, aren't we told in the next chapter, Acts chapter 11, that Peter spoke at length about the first Gentile, and he referred to Cornelius, not a previous person. Maybe it is in that light. We'll close our lesson tonight and offer the Lord's invitation. If there's someone in this assembly that stands distant from the Lord at this point, please don't remain in that condition. Jesus died at the cross for you, and He died that you might be near unto Him and near unto God. And we would, in fact, love to not only be a part of encouraging you in that light, but being a cloud of witnesses that can be a strong support. This congregation would love to all occupy that place of strength and fidelity, a source of great comfort in your life. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in that regard, if you've never become a Christian, won't you believe on the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If you have known the way of salvation, appreciating the opportunity that that brings, but you have not been faithful, why not come back to your first love? The Lord invites you. He pleads with you. He implores for you to come. He wants that which is best for you, and He wants all of eternity to be in the right place of sweetness and honor and bliss and pleasantness. But He allows you to make the decision. He allowed Satan to make the decision too, or at least the angels, and they chose badly. That group chose terribly. And for all eternity, they will, of course, regret, no doubt, that choice they made. Please don't regret the choice you make. You don't know if you'll be living tomorrow. The Lord may come back. You may pass away. Don't you want to be saved tonight? If we could assist you then in coming back to your first love, we'd love to help. If you'll repent of your sins and make confession of them, the Lord has promised to forgive them. And tonight we would love to encourage you in that way and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.